The Army may be putting its final touches on the plan for the Army of 2030, but it's already looking ahead to building its Army of 2040. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins us with the details. Alexandra, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Eric? I'm very well. So how is the Army going about planning for a future that is 17 years away? Doesn't that seem crazy? They've <laughs> been talking far, a yeah. lot about the <laughs> they've been talking a lot about the army of 2030 and it sounds like they've got that pretty well on target and now they're really starting to pivot when they talk about it and say, you know, we really have to plan this out now. And they're looking at having a draft concept of the 2040 army pulled together by this fall. Uh, this week there was a USA AUSA Global Force Symposium in Huntsville, Alabama, and a bunch of the general officers who were there were talking about this concept of 2040 and what they have to do to be ready for it and and what their plans are. Uh, Here's Army Futures Commanding Officer General James Ramey. 2040 seems like a long way away, but I I believe we have about an 18, 12, 18, 24-month window that we need to pursue with a sense of urgency to figure out what's going to be different, what's the operating environment going to look like. Not to get it right, but to make sure we don't get it really wrong and to be in a better position than whoever we're fighting to adapt to the changes between what we thought and what really happens. All right. And part of the plan involved training, I imagine? That's one of the big things they're planning for, Eric. The Army Futures Command and the Training and Doctrine Command, that's TRADOC, Uh, They're looking at changes as they move forward because they're going to have way different technology in 17 years. They've already revised one operating manual to a 3.0 level. And then they're looking at new plans that are going to match new technology, which they're not exactly sure what it's going to be. But as they plan, the planning has to be for how are we going to train our enlisted soldiers? How are we going to train our non-commissioned officers? And how are we going to train our young junior officers coming into the Army? Uh, here's General Ramey again. They're working hard on leader, leader development, right? That's a, one of our superpowers as, as an Army, the quality of leaders we produce. So the, the assessment programs, looking at our battalion commanders, brigade commanders, command sergeant majors, make sure we get that right. And I could go on and on. Well, in order to have leaders, you're going to have to have them start out as recruits. How does recruiting factor into this plan? Yeah, recruiting is one of the things the Army is talking about so much right now, because last year they fell short of their recruiting goal by 15,000 soldiers. And all reports this year so far looks like they're again, again going to fall short of their recruiting goals. So the big question everyone is asking is, what do we do about that? How are we going to fix recruiting? They're figuring it's going to take a five to seven year push to really get recruiting back on track. And the goal for that 2040 Army is to see a fully fielded Army with everyone they need there. But again, it's looking ahead because the soldiers that they're going to recruit in 2040, they're babies right now. And so they haven't even they don't even know what the experience of those young men and women are going to be as they move forward. Here's Lieutenant General Scott McKeon, who's the Deputy Commanding General at Army Futures Command. What will our soldiers, what will our commanders look like in 2040, right? What's their skill sets going to be? They're not our skill sets. You know, we are digital immigrants, right? You know, we are not digital natives. And today's young lieutenants, young specialists out there today will be in positions similar to what we are in now, you know, in, in 2040, 
what's their skill set and what's going to be important to them. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, and new technology seems to be the name of the game with any modern military. So what part will new tech play in this plan? They're really not totally sure, but there's a lot going on. And they talk about those young people who are coming in as people who grew up gaming and who are very technologically astute. And so the kind of things they're looking at are in training, they're using a lot more simulators, uh, virtual reality type things where they are able to layer in all kinds of details, like what a street looks like in a, in a war zone and whether there are carts on it or cars on it or people. And so that's one thing they're doing. Then there's, of course, lots of sensors, lots of data management. How do we get data to the to the field? How do we tr- share it with our joint partners? That's the interoperability part. Joint forces are, are a key word in all of this planning. And as one general said, what they're really looking for is infantrymen who can go out there and still come back and code on a computer. All right. Well, we'll certainly be hearing more about this, I'm sure, as we also will be standing by for those new recruitment ads to go on our Facebook timelines and we'll see them during uh, the Super Bowl, probably. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Eric. And be all you can be, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. 
And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? 
1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.